I uh, just want to point out that we have the product of five years of a committee that is recommending the uh, 150 books that all students perhaps not should read, uh, but at least be familiar with before they graduate. And so this will be a poster this size, and we will actually in a couple of weeks be able to distribute them so that everyone can put up a poster wherever they like on your bathroom door. I don't know where George Scott <laughs> Christian places his. Uh, uh, and we also have, this is something that you'll also find of interest. This is what it means to be a Churchill scholar in the words of the Churchill scholars themselves. If you're looking for a Churchill scholar, they're the ones in coats and ties sitting around the, around the room. Uh, Paul, Paul Sullivan is a veteran of the British Studies Seminar. He's been in it for years and years. Uh, but the point I would like to make about a, his career is that he taught for two decades uh, as a teacher in high school. And this is highly uh, unusual and commendable, uh, given the importance of high school uh, education. Uh, Paul then came back uh, to do his uh, PhD in English. And then he served, uh, along with uh, Barbara Carlin, in Plan, uh, plan One in uh, the dean's office. And there are many of the uh, Plan One students who are in the audience this afternoon. He is going to speak with us today on Martyrs and Mistresses in Restoration London. Thank you, Roger. Thank you for that kind introduction. And thank you all for coming out on a rainy day to, um, to look at some old papers with me. Um, the, um, does everyone have a copy of the letter we're going to be transcribing today? Does anyone need a copy? Yeah. I have a few more if you need one. Um, the original of this newsletter is, uh, which is from 1676, um, is in a box upstairs with the other manuscripts uh, from the Ransom Center's Fortsheimer collection. We're looking at a digital image from the Ransom Center's website. Anyone with a computer can read the manuscript at home. Oh, and thousands of others like it. One aim here today is to think about how such ready access to archives um, changes the way we read the past. The British Studies Seminar uh, seems uniquely placed to provide ideas on questions like that and ask questions from other perspectives than mine, which is literary, essentially. Um, we have a rare assembly of readers and writers of various outlooks and disciplines gathered in one room in one of the world's great archives. Here are some young scholars who've spent their entire research careers using technology that allows anyone anywhere to scrutinize documents like this from a long way away online. There may be others here who come rather late, as I do, to the worldwide digital archive. For many years, I have looked around this room on Friday afternoons and wondered what the other people in the seminar were up to when they weren't at British Studies. And today, I see a chance. 
please help me out with a um, sudden survey of what we bring to this discussion today. First off, who among us studies or teaches history as your main subject? Um, you need to get your elbow by your ear. Okay. <laughs> a lot of people here. Good, thank you. Um, what about politics or government? There we are. Um, what about literature and language or language? Good job. And other disciplines at the university? What are those, please, Shane? Philosophy. All right. Comparative education. Good. Uh, plan two. Plan two. I, I, I studied that, too. Library science. Good. I studied that, too. Anybody else? Law. Law. Good. Welcome. Um, what about librarians or archivists among us? Thank you. How many of you are graduate students at the MA level? Three, four. What about at the PhD pre-dissertation level? And how many are dissertationing? Good, thanks. Um, how many undergraduates do we have all told today, if you'd raise your hand? That's wonderful. People say this about British studies all the time, but where else do you get this mix? Okay. Um, now, maybe the most important question, what about interested members of a larger community beyond or overlapping with the university? All right. Again, thank you for being here to, on a rainy afternoon. Now, whom have I left out? Good. I have two more questions. Well, John Berry. Oh, John. <laughs> I'm an interested outside community. He's a disinterested outside Walter. community. <laughs> Walter raised his hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Interesting. Two more questions in this survey. How many of you have used archives on site in a research library or public record offices? Wonderful. So you know what that costs in every sense of the term. And how many of you have used archival materials like this manuscript um, in digital form online. So we can find much to learn from each other today. My observations along the way will have a literary flavor, but they're meant only to prime a free discussion on the questions I ask and on any others that occur to you as we go along. Another of my topics today is archival transcription. To leap right into that, Let's read together, decipher the first sentence of this letter. Now, I have a, a very kind draftee from uh, Professor Lewis's British History, Literature, and Politics course. And that is, if she would introduce herself, um, yeah. Daniela. My name is Daniela Cox. I'm a third year um, international relations and LH student. Good. So the idea is that Daniela is going to read the first sentence, lines one through seven, aloud. You're going to follow along closely because she's teaching you to read this handwriting as she does this. Right? And um, you're going to pitch in and help her if she struggles. Is good? Daniela, please. Um, 
I've had yesterday an unlucky accident at Whitehall on I can help you with that. Anybody? In the, in the Earl. Good. That's a the. By the way, it's not a y. It's not ye. There's no such word. There's no such article in English. It's an it's a old letter called a thorn that is pronounced tha. Here we go. Um, thank you. Of Peter Burroughs. Yes. Lodgings. Good. Where a young Lass. 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 Yes. Very important word. Anybody? Happened. Happened. Good. To bring herself with great art and industry. Pause. Did everyone catch with? You'll need it again. Did you see with, W-T-H? Yeah. Daniela, please. And cause of it is supposed to be loved, or at least some effect of it. The cause. Yeah. Well Bravo. done. <laughs> Good. And it's the cause of it is supposed to be love. Um, thank you, uh, Daniela. Bravely done. I can see this is going to go swimmingly. Uh, but the very first word was we, isn't it? It is. Thank you very much. We had yesterday an unlucky accident at Whitehall. Good. Um, thank you. Um, we'll return to this unlucky last um, throughout the talk today. And we'll read the rest of the letter together. I bring it here um, with several purposes. One is to introduce the Bullstrode newsletters, which are one of the treasures of um, the Ransom Center. I also bring it as an example of what I find to be flashes of vivid reading um, that are to be found scattered through this global archive um, that I've been talking about. In the next half hour or so, we'll transcribe the letter together, and then we'll add some explanatory notes um, from a single source online, that being the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography of British Studies fame. The object of this exercise is to practice what a transcriber does to make manuscripts searchable. After that, we'll glance at a variety of crowdsourced transcription projects going on all over the world, just in case you want to try this at home. And finally, I'll ask you to talk about your own experiences of this kind of work as reading. Good. The university acquired the letter in 1986 as part of the library assembled by Carl Fortzheimer, who was a New York banker and a major collector in the first half of the 20th century. The collection comprises 1,100 printed books and 2,000 manuscripts. The printed books include quartos and folios from Shakespeare, several unique imprints. We have the only copies, um, mostly of English literature. The Ransom Center also has Fortzheimer's Gutenberg Bible, which you passed on the way in today, which was acquired about eight years earlier than the bulk of the collection. The 2,000 Fortzheimer manuscripts, by contrast to the printed material, um, include almost 1,500 newsletters from this collection. 
sent between 1667 and 1689 to Sir Richard Bulstrode, a British diplomat in Brussels throughout the reigns of Charles II and James II. As the Ransom Center website notes, the Bulstrode letters make up one of the most extensive collections of early news reporting in English. The letters give us a mix of gossip, scandal, and political reporting, often all mixed up together, as you will see. For the last three years, I've been reading and transcribing Bulstrode letters. That means I come into the Ransom Center for a few hours a week, open up the digital image of a letter like this online, place the original manuscript next to me for double checking. Then I type a digital copy as true to the original as possible, even to the point of preserving eccentric spelling and <coughs> punctuation in the transcription. I add minimal footnotes, mostly to add standard spellings of names, otherwise spelled differently in the letter, in order to make electronic searching easier. We'll, we're going to practice that too. I've transcribed about 400 letters so far for the years 1676 to 80, and about 800 remain to be done to get us to 1689 on the other side of the glorious revolution when the letters end. In the process of transcribing, I have got the feeling, I emphasize that word, that raw archival material in itself can be a deeply rewarding kind of reading. That feeling, however, should be treated with the same skepticism that you reserve for people who recommend eating raw vegetables or taking long walks in any weather. Harmless pleasure, not for everybody. No matter how widely we distribute documents like these online, reading archives will remain, probably, for most of us, not an end in itself, but a means to other ends, raw material for historical writing. But it also seems probable now that as so many more readers can easily read archives, more will be doing it. It appears that this is happening already. Thousands of otherwise outwardly sane people are signing up to help with online transcription projects that we'll talk about at the end of this. Where could these long excursions and unfiltered archives take us? in our thinking about the past, or our planning our own reading. Already high quality images of all the Bullstrode letters appear on the Ransom Center's um, online collection. And the first 200 or so of the 1500 also have searchable transcriptions online. Eventually they all will. Transcriptions help readers decipher old handwriting, but because they're machine readable, they also provide the power to search the whole text for selected words very quickly. Most of us conduct keyword searches every day just to shop. Uh, but for the record, I'll illustrate by searching for a name that shows up later in our letter. Suppose that you're writing a study of Louise de Queroual, the Duchess of Portsmouth, one of the mistresses of King Charles II. That's the piece that Sarah just did for us. And this is what I got when I searched for Duchess of Portsmouth on the HRC website. I instantly found seven of the Bullstrode letters. These are thumbnails of the letters um, that 
mention at some point the Duchess of Portsmouth in those terms in the text. Um, in other words, uh, if you were studying the Duchess, you could that quickly find seven primary documents that touched your subject. What you find in them might be nothing new for you, or it might be an unexpected treasure. The miracle of this for people who know the paper archive is that this happens so quickly. Um, so even at that, word searches are not going to replace reading any more than using an index in the back of a book did. The best bit that I've found so far about the Duchess of Portsmouth, for example, appears in a letter of May 1676 from the same newsletter office that sent out our letter. Um, these letters came actually from two or more newsletter offices. More about that. The Duchess is never mentioned by name, but the, we get a waspish account of the waning powers of some unnamed lady at the court. Many are apt to suspect that our prime she favorite is not so secure in her greatness as to be out of all danger of being shaken. But quite contrary, some of our court mimics do begin to be so free with her already as to represent and personate her something comically in some company where such jests would not have taken formerly. This is looked upon by others as a dangerous symptom. Um, the symptom language, I think, refers to the uh, um, persistent rumor that she was a spreader of venereal disease, but that's for a scholar to work out um, using this transcription. Um, this report, whether it's true or false, whether it's idle fabricated gossip or actually true, I would argue gives us a valuable glimpse of what a faltering power at court would have looked like and felt like in August of uh, 1676. Now, to the transcription job. To make sure that anyone studying the Duchess could find this passage, even though her name's not there, a transcriber could and should add a little footnote. Our prime she favorite, probably Louise de Caroual, Duchess of Portsmouth, etc. When that's in the electronic record, a search for the Duchess of Portsmouth would add this document to the six that I showed, seven that I showed you, um, if I'm making sense. Um, she was the K labels her as a Breton, does it? Breton, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, Searchable transcriptions are a booming industry these days. Libraries and archives want to get more eyes on their texts, and they're putting their collections online in huge numbers. For example, a consortium of research libraries, Text Creation Partnership, has produced searchable transcripts of 125,000 books printed before 1700. This is basically the short title catalog in both its iterations. Um, Scholars who study the 16th and 17th centuries rely on the consortium's database called Early English Books Online. Has anyone used Ebo? Uh, you can hardly believe what you have in front of you when you open it. The book itself, which you can turn image by image, and a searchable transcription of most of them. And it's growing. 
all the time. Um, when I searched in Ebo for the Duchess of, that's early English books online, for the Duchess of Portsmouth, um, I found this document. That's the famous painting of her in the National Gallery in London, um, National Portrait Gallery by Peter Lely. Um, I found this printed document and uh, its transcription. Uh, sorry, it is an indictment um, of the Duchess of Portsmouth on 22 criminal counts, including exposing the king to nauseous and contagious distempers and acting as a foreign agent for the king of France and the pope. As it happens, she probably was doing those things at least. In effect, this name search made a fast connection to a printed document that shows Portsmouth, among other things, had survived in power four years after the manuscript um, with the court mimics in it was predicting her uh, downfall. For a footnote, the Dictionary of National Biography tells us that the king suspended parliament, prorogued parliament, before the indictment could be brought against her there. Um, now, before we wander any more into court intrigue, let's go back to transcribing our own letter. Um, from the death of our nameless lass, the newswriter turns to a rich young woman contemplating a marriage a la mode. We will begin at line seven, and who, thank you, and it's Sarah, Sarah. thank you. Um, my name is Sarah, I'm a sustainability studies major. Um, thank you. We are told first the match so long talked of between Lord. Good job. Uh, Good job. Lord. I can't read that one. Sorry. Anybody? Lord Harry Howard. Yes, good. And that is an open parens. I'll cheat this much to tell you that that's an open parens. The Earl Marshall's son. The Earl Marshall's son. Good. Uh, and Lady Henrietta Wentworth's now quite oft <laughs> um, the young lady refusing him because he is said uh, as to, he is said to uh, he is said to keep yep. a mistress so odd which is which is which is so odd an affection in our age of <laughs> so odd an exception it is actually good. And now yeah. everybody pay attention in our age. The next word is yeah. that actually. Oh. Uh, the, the, this is a Clarkly uh, convenience, uh, an abbreviation. The Y just takes the place of TH. You fill in the vowels yourself. So, so uh, uh, in our age, that, back to you. Sorry. Uh, that, um, and you see the ship syncopated. Uh -huh. yeah. uh, almost lost her credit by it. Good. And is looked upon as somewhat 
unreasonable not to say worse <laughs> for affecting or uh, anybody good expecting or desiring expecting or desiring to have a whole <laughs> a whole man to herself. Um, so, in these first two reports, the unlucky lass, the unreasonable lady, we hear notes of cynicism and even debauchery um, that are typical of a restoration rake, and we might make some assumptions about our newswriter. But because of the slippery nature of tone in, in any language, especially in the letters from this particular office, the Coleman office, the effects of the report really remain unclear, I think. Could the Wentworth episode that we just read just as easily be an ironic comment by a conservative observer on the state of modern marriage, um, so odd an exception in our day? Uh, is there a fixed answer to that? In the absence of a verifiable historical answer, I ask a literary question. How can factual ambiguity add truth to historical narrative? What could be the value of dwelling for a time, say the time it takes to read a letter, inside the bafflement that prevails at any moment in history. How do these reports about two young women of no apparent political importance move us closer to the way things were in August 1676 without knowing yes or no about those questions? Um, grainy and even grimy as the letters may be, they can't precisely be bunched with history from below. The bulk of the newsletters came to Sir Richard Bolstrode from, from an office at Whitehall, um, a center of British state power then and now. Many of the letters report on treaties, military operations, promotions in the Navy, promotions in the church, a venture to find a Northeast passage to the Americas, acts of parliament limiting the import of Irish cattle, uh, or requiring that English woolen goods be used in burial wrappings. The waxing and waning of favorites at court is a favorite subject. But the letters occasionally report from a lower social register, the woes of a nameless lass, um, or the drowning of an old woman in the ditch. The old woman, it's true, turns out to be Nell Gwynne's mother, Nell Gwynne, another royal mistress. In these old letters, the personal and the peculiar infuse the public and the, the public and the political at every moment. Now back to transcribing. Third and final report in our letter goes to the troubles of the Queen of England. Uh, and so we, I think we need a little more context up front for this one. The recipient, Sir Richard Bulstrode, was a staunch royalist, but he was also a Catholic, more or less secret, secretly. After the Test Act of 1673, his religion would have actually cost him his government job. Um, an important subset of his newsletters um, 
come from not Whitehall, but other well-placed informants. And our letter, and also the earlier letter about the she favorite, co both come from the office of one Edward Coleman, who was a secretary in the household of the Duchess of York, wife of James, the much embattled heir apparent, the king's brother. Um, the 235 letters that we have from Coleman's office tend to insinuation, <coughs> sensation, and news concerning Catholics. They are much more fun than the ones from Whitehall and certainly more stylish as writing. Um, Coleman, Edward Coleman, like his subscriber Bulstrode and their patron James, was a Catholic convert. His newsletter business may have provided a Catholic news feed to supplement James, to Bulstrode's more orthodox sources, as at Whitehall. At the time of our letter, anti-Catholic sentiment was causing particular trouble for the queen, Catherine of Braganza. Her isolation as a foreigner and a Catholic was aggravated by the fact that she had failed to produce even one heir to the throne. Moreover, the king, under pressure from parliament, felt compelled now and then to expel conspicuous Catholics from court. That explains the main event reported here. The Portugal ambassador mentioned in the first sentence is actually the queen's beloved godfather, who also served as her chamberlain, that is, running her household for a time. And you will recognize our dear old friend, the Duchess of Portsmouth, still a prime she favorite, promoting her own interests at court. Who is leading the way here? Thanks. If you would introduce yourself again, that's very nice. Yeah, um, my name is Alex. Uh, I'm studying public policy in Madison mostly, um, a variety of different things. Uh, so we're on line 17. Uh, I believe it starts, the Portugal as truthfully is now Portugal um, ambassador. ambassador. Portugal ambassador. Portugal ambassador. Um, against no more for. Again, and. And no more. And no more for the king has this day eased him of his uh, and or his or her case. Anybody? His other care. His other care. That's the word that I mentioned to you that. I, it was case until this morning. Someone immediately saw it was care. Okay. Care in the sense of duty. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, change of care and charge. charge in the sense of a job. Charge of Lord Chamberlain uh, to the Queen has taken from him and given. Mm -hmm. taken Right, has taken it from him and given, given it to uh, the Earl of Sunderland. Um, which believe will be a Double affection. Affection or? Affliction, good. 
to her ma. And who, what is ma? To her majesty. Good. Uh, thank you. Um, you drew a short straw. Uh, who's taking it up there? Thank you, Shane. Hey, uh, my name's Shane. I'm a fourth year philosophy major. Uh, let's do this. All right. First, to lose Good. a man she herself chose. And secondly, uh, to have one she, of all men, least like. Yep. Uh, a favorite of the Duchess of Portsmouth. In short, one who may. Who? Many. Many. Uh huh. What's next? Good. Who many think? Mm -hmm. uh, she will take liberty to refuse. Take the liberty to refuse. Thank you so much to these uh, bold transcribers. If you help me. Um, this part of the report stands out from the two others. He takes the queen's part so feelingly after gazing so coldly at those two other women. Um, the irony that he would look so coldly at the fastidious lady who didn't want to tolerate a husband's mistress and then, the way I hear it, um, cheer for the queen to resist when it's her turn to do the same. Reading back from that sense of cheering, do you feel it? Is the, is the writer hoping that she'll refuse? There's no yes, no answer. It's not there in the text. But reading back from that, I wonder how he feels about the resistance of, of Lady Henrietta Wentworth, or even of the girl who hanged herself. Um, it turns out to look like an act of resistance um, rather than just scandal uh, in the light of this. But there's an English teacher talking. Um, now, we have a transcription. But it's full of questions like the ones I asked, and I hope some that you've thought of. Uh, maybe some context will help. As we've seen, the Dictionary of National Biography hereafter, the DNB, can help a transcriber answer context questions efficiently and on good authority. I don't limit myself to it by any means when I'm um, doing this transcribing and filling in notes. But I want to demonstrate today just how efficient it is as a single source online. Um, the articles in the DMB, as you know, are signed, and they all have bibliographies. And the bibliographies commonly include primary sources, archival sources. Um, they've led me in several cases to where Coleman's own papers are, for example. Um, using the DMB to look up names from the letter, we get, first of all, a healthy reminder that news reports are not always fact. The Earl of Sunderland the Duchess's favorite, never got the job as Chamberlain. Um, maybe she took the liberty to refuse to have the Duchess's favorite running her household, yet the DMB records that two days later, sorry, two years later, under pressure, the Queen renewed the appointment of her rival, the Duchess, as one of her own ladies-in-waiting. Um, these rivals were closing ranks when both suffered real danger from Catholic haters at the height of the exclusion crisis. The queen and her servants were actually, oh, sorry, at the height of the popish plot. The queen and her servants were accused of conspiring to poison the king. The duchess, as we have seen, 
was indicted in 1680, the same year. The king defended them both. They both survived the king. Now, about Henrietta Wentworth, we learn from the DNB that she was 16 years old when she refused the Duke of Norfolk's son, Harry Howard. And her tale turns out to be not a, a tale of chaste propriety, but of romance. When she was only 14, Lady Henrietta, already a baroness in her own right with a large fortune, had met the king's illegitimate son, James Scott, Duke of Monmouth, when they both performed in a mask at court. Monmouth, who'd been married off at age 14, had a string of mistresses, a wife, and far-flung children of his own by the time he was 21 years old. Then he ran into Henrietta Wentworth again. Soon after, he left his wife and lived openly with Henrietta Wentworth for the rest of his short life. By all accounts, he was a reformed man, though never a wise one. After the death of his father, the king, Monmouth was persuaded to lead a rebellion against his uncle James, hoping to land on the throne as a Protestant monarch. Um, he helped finance the rebellion with a Dutch loan guaranteed by the jewels of Lady Henrietta Wentworth. The DNB reports on his last hour before his execution as a traitor. Um, quote, and this is the prose writer in the DNB. On the scaffold after the rebellion's defeat, Monmouth renewed his pledges of devotion to Henrietta when the two bishops present badgered him over his conduct with her. He broke in angrily that he'd been married to his wife when only a child, that Henrietta had reclaimed him from a licentious life, and he had been faithful to her, and she was a religious, godly lady. As someone has said of another rebel, nothing in his life so became him like believing it. Even the mighty, mighty DNB cannot provide a redemptive afterlife for the lass whose death began our letter. The Earl of Peterborough, in whose lodging she hanged herself, was then a man in his early 50s and another loyal partisan of James. So the report of a suicide putting all the titillation aside of the effect of love, uh, might have alerted Bulstrode to trouble for a powerful man of his own faction. Um, the DNB does not mention the incident in its account of Peterborough, and I've not found other accounts of it in my searches elsewhere so far. Where is the archive? that has this girl's name and story in it. If we take this letter as an example of early news reporting business, we see that from the inception, the business retailed news as entertainment and factional rumor as fact. And that brings us to the story of Edward Coleman himself. In August of 1676, one week before our letter went out, his newsletter reports that he had been accused of publishing a popish book, though he denied it. The newsletter reports it in the third person, by the way, Mr. Coleman, the Duchess's secretary. In December, his newsletters report more of the same 
trouble. And by early January, he had lost his job in um, James's household. The report of that dismissal recalls the sacking of the Portugal ambassador. And, and both were, of course, conspicuous Catholics being thrown overboard under pressure. The line is, the general talk of the town, he always wrote of himself that way, by the way, he thought he was the general talk of the town, uh, is that Mr. Coleman, and by the way, there's no reason to believe he was the author. His office always spoke of him that way. We don't know if he authored these or not. Um, um, Mr. Coleman, her Royal Highness's secretary, is eased of his employment. And that one Mr. Tefo of Flemingen has succeeded him. Coleman's office continued to publish newsletters, raising money, presumably, for an unemployed man, for two more years. But in September of 78, 1678, the series ends abruptly. At that time, exactly, a stupendously bold charlatan, Titus Oates, claimed to have uncovered a vast Catholic plot to kill the king and put the Catholic James on the throne in his place. Other accusers, smelling profit in this, um, chimed in and started to sing. In the spiral of frenzy that followed, three dozen alleged popish plotters were executed for treason. Dozens more, including the solidly Protestant Sam Pepys, were jailed, some of them for years. One of the first of Oates's victims was Edward Coleman. We learn from the DNB that Oates got lucky in um, going after Coleman, who seemed probably to be an easy mark. He was a known Catholic and a member of James's household. So as it happened, when, James, when Coleman's house was searched, letters were found that showed he'd been secretly working to get the French crown to subsidize King Charles so that Charles would not have to depend on parliament or even call parliament. Um, such collusion with a foreign power and a Catholic one was enough. There's a long gap in the Bulstrode letters after Coleman's arrest. Even the letters from Whitehall are missing for several months. But the Folger Library in Washington, part of this worldwide archive, has a comparable collection, the Newtigate newsletters, that include an account of Coleman's trial. There, a witness claimed that he'd heard Coleman declare, quote, if he had a thousand lives and a sea of blood, he would spend them for his design to kill the king and for destroying all heretical princes, unquote. Again, we've, we don't know if it's true or not. What we get is words from the time, whether true or not. Um, another Newtigate letter, a week later, um, notes as an afterthought, scrawled in the margin, that Coleman had died a traitor's death. This day, Coleman was, according to his sentence, good, Dr 
in opposite order, drawn, hanged, and quartered. It's been a day, hasn't it? Um, sorry. For a time after uh, uh, the popish plot broke, the news was just wildly popular. Um, and a year later, this deck of playing cards was published with engraved engravings of the crimes and executions and uh, capture, in some cases, of the popish plotters who'd been killed so far. There are plenty left to go. Um, one of the cards, the Six of Hearts, um, carries this image of Coleman drawn to his execution. Sorry. No. In a sled of some sort or a tub. Um, some of those executed, like Coleman, must have been, and he was, obnoxious and imprudent and conniving. Many of them were clearly Catholic zealots, but not one, according to all the archival research that's been done since then, seems to have been guilty as charged. Um, the Dictionary of National Biography reports that in 1929, Coleman was beatified by Pope Pius XI, along with other martyrs of the English Reformation and persecutions. Afterlife, Sir Richard Bulstrode sat tight in Brussels. He continued to get newsletters from an office at Whitehall for more than a decade. After the revolution of 1688, he joined the deposed King James in exile in Saint Germain outside Paris. He survived his royal master by a decade, dying at the age of 101. Historians of the period have to filter out mountains of archival material to make sense of the quagmire of religious faction, royal bumbling, and political conflict. They have to put emphasis where they believe it belongs. By contrast, the Bullstrode letters sometimes report shocking, even epochal events, almost incidentally. Um, the enormities of the Popish plot are mixed in with prattle about horse racing at Newmarket. About some major events, the letters are silent or missing. So what can you learn from such unreliable sources? The Bullstrad letters and archives generally seem to me to give the experience of muddle, as if we need more of that, muddle that inevitably surrounds epochal moments. That muddle cannot furnish an orderly narrative or tidy arguments for cause and effect or change or continuity. But its very incoherence can produce for readers, who sometimes like their vegetables raw, a poetic experience of truth, mostly subjective, hopelessly personal, and intractably embedded in the fugitive curlicues of words. 
Stephen Greenblatt, the reigning dean of American Shakespeare Studies, speaks of writing that can provide a powerful hallucination of presence, the vivid sensation of lived life. They set the dead in motion and make them speak. I am not a stick figure in a textbook. I was once alive, emotionally complex, beset with fears and daydreams, just as you are now. But Greenblatt is writing there about historical fiction, novels like Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall. Maybe that's the proper end for all this grainy archival detail. W.H. Auden celebrates the kind of archival inclusiveness he found in paintings of the old masters, who never, he says, give us the sublime without the grubby. He writes, they never forget that even the dreadful martyrdom must run its course anyhow in a corner, some untidy spot where the dogs go with their doggy life, and the torturer's horse scratches its innocent behind on a tree. I suggest that reading old newsletters unfolds history in much that way, and not just newsletters. In conclusion, I want you to consider this sampling of online archives from prim of primary materials, many still in need of transcription to make them fully useful to readers. The British Library invites volunteer transcribers to put its old card catalog into digital form. More than 1,800 transcribers have responded. The National Archives in Washington run a similar program enlisting what they call citizen archivists for online transcription. New York Public Library is putting its vast collection of restaurant menus <laughs> online with help from volunteer transcribers. Boston Public Library is doing the same with its collection of anti-slavery documents. The Huntington Library is crowdsourcing transcription of Civil War telegrams. And the Newberry Library, it's archive of letters and diaries of ordinary Americans in the 19th century. These projects prompt us to ask how reliable volunteer transcribers can be. And there seems to be good news on that as well. Since 2010, University College London has run a crowdsourced transcription project on its mountain of papers of Jeremy Bentham. SOPAR volunteers have transcribed 20,000 pages at a very high level of accuracy as checked by a professional staff and reported in a juried study only last month online. Um, so what difference does all this make? There's a real risk in confusing the archival record with history, let me be clear. Even historians who quote lavishly from primary documents will avoid being accused of mere antiquarianism, redolent of the amateur and the dilettante. And nobody believes that reading archives online is going to replace either the academic discipline of history or popular reading about the past. But how could it change those kinds of reading and produce new ones? Now over to you. As a way of starting the discussion, I'll ask a specific question about your experience of teaching or taking a class. What's the place of archival materials in courses you've taken or taught at UT Austin or elsewhere? Thank you kindly. <laughs>